Good morning, Faith Church. If you would, you can open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 6 as we finish uh, our series on the Lord's Prayer today. If, if you want, you can also uh, put a finger or a bookmark or something uh, in 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 Peter 5. Those are going to be a couple of other passages that we will bounce back and forth to a little bit today. So uh, as we begin this time, would you pray with me? And I encourage you to join with me as we pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. So today, as we wrap up this series on the Lord's Prayer, we get to this last line, which always has a little bit of confusion in it, where he says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's kind of a confusing phrase, right? The idea of praying to God, hey God, don't lead us into temptation when we we know that God doesn't tempt anyone. In James it says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. And so what is Jesus actually telling us to pray here in, in this moment? And, and the phrase here is also understood as, as testing. What, what happens when we are being tested? Because we know that God tests us. He tests our faith and we know that it's for our good. Just a few weeks ago in our last ser- sermon in our series on Mark, we touched on this. That it is God in his kindness who tests our faith. In, in James chapter 1, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so we talked about how genuine faith is demonstrated belief that lasts. We talked about how that's why God is so kind to test our faith. If, if the faith that matters is the faith that lasts and can persevere, then it is his kindness that tests that so that we can see. Not for his benefit. He doesn't test us because he doesn't know the condition of our faith. He tests us so that we would know the condition of our faith. Because he wants us to not settle for something less. And so he does that to reveal our hearts to ourselves. And so because he wants us to have a full faith, if we are lacking in that, we would want to know. And he does that through testing. And so the assumption as Jesus is talking to his disciples and teaching them how to pray, the assumption is that trials will come. The assumption is that tests will be there when you meet various kinds of trials. Jesus says later in John 15, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And again later he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And so we know it is a given in the Christian life 
that you will have trials, that you will have tribulation, and that these are tests for us, for our faith. And it is through those tests that God grows us the most. And so what Jesus is encouraging them to do is to pray that during those tests that we would not fall into temptation. Because it is where, it is those tests, not only where God does his best work and most of his work in our lives, it is also where the enemy is waiting, prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour us. So the enemy sees those tests as an opportunity to lure us into temptation. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. It is when we are being tested, when we are struggling, when we are facing trials, that the enemy swoops in and lures us, does what he does best. He lies to us about who God is and about who we are, and he lures us away from God. And the truth is, we don't need much help. We say often a paraphrase of D.A. Carson's quote saying that you, you don't drift toward God. That's not our natural state. Our natural state is that we drift away from God. We drift away from holiness. And so in James 1, when he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. He then says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So since the garden, it has been Satan's aim to lure God's children away from him and to lead them towards destruction, enticing them really with his own desires. And so the prayer here is, God, protect us. Don't lead us into temptation. Don't let us fall into temptation. Protect us. Deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from evil. Keep us from that. Keep us faithful to you. And he does do that. Faithfully. He promises to deliver us. That other passage I told you to keep a little bookmark in. 1 Corinthians 10. Verses 12 and 13. It says, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is one of the most misquoted passages in all of Scripture. You may have heard it paraphrased this way, that God never gives you more than you can handle. But when you hear that and you read this passage, you realize it's not at all what it's saying. What he's saying is that when you are tempted, God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted in such a way that he would lose you, that you would fall away. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape. That's his promise to us, that he will deliver us, that he will protect us. And so when we think about how, how do we pray this and what does this look like as we looked at other parts of the Lord's Prayer, we said, okay, this is what this statement means. And then our goal, our aim has been to fill your mind and your heart with other things that, that then flow after it. When we say our Father in heaven that you would be thinking about, what does that mean that I'm his son? What does that mean that he is my father? What does it mean that he's in heaven? And we start praying through all those things. Hallowed be your name. We are praying that God's name would be praised in all the earth. So what about this? 
Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Well, I want to give just a few really clear things that I think God is calling us to to pray for that would protect us from falling into temptation. The first is found in that passage in 1 Peter 5 in verse 8. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. So he's saying, be mindful, be watchful, be aware, be ready. Sometimes we buy into the idea, the lie, that we don't have an enemy. There's that great saying, that great quote, that the greatest um, trick that the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. And there's a lot of truth in that. He, he, he's super happy to not get any of the credit for luring you away or destroying you. He is fine with that. His desire, his aim is to destroy. And so we often buy into that lie. We buy into that lie that there's not really an enemy, that we're really just fine, and that there's nothing dangerous around us, that people make too big of a deal about um, sin and about the temptation to fall into that. And really, as long as I just keep going down my road and mind my own business, I'll be fine. We think that our normal resting state, as long as we just kind of maintain our status quo, that we'll drift toward God. And, but that would be like, Naively skipping down a dark alley in a crime-infested neighborhood, completely unaware of the dangers that are present. The, the enemy has been doing this for a long time, and he knows the opportunities, and we need to be aware of how he works. One of the ways that he works is in the area of our desires. And we've talked about this a lot, that when you desire something that that he will start to lie to you and he will whisper things to you saying that God is holding back on you. You want this thing. You deserve this thing. Whether it's something big, you know, like a, a, a relationship or a career or, or something small, like just a, a little, uh, just something that you want to spend money on, like a new piece of clothing or, you know, a new fishing pole or whatever the case is or new whatever, like that we desire these things and, and the enemy comes in there and says, see, you want this thing. And God either says, no, you shouldn't have it. Or he's not answering. He's not giving it to you. I mean, think of something that you want right now that you don't have. That's where the enemy, that's one of the key areas that he starts to dig in. You know, if God was good, he would give you that thing. If God was near, he would know that you actually deserve this and he wouldn't withhold this from you. Or this thing is better than, than anything God can offer you right now. So he does that in our desires. He also is prowling around during our fear, in the midst of our fears. Because when we fear something and we want something to be taken away, that we're scared that something's going to happen or we're walking through a trial that we are afraid of that is causing us grief and we're praying that God would take it away, the enemy is right there to whisper lies. Like God isn't really in control. Is God really in control? Do you think he would, if he was, wouldn't he deliver you from this? If he was real, don't you think that he would stop this from happening? If he was good, he would have never let this happen in the first place. So he, we see in both our desires and our fears, the enemy, that is the walking down the dark alley, the enemy is prowling around like a roaring lion. See, the Bible says 
that God in Christ delivers us from our greatest fears and he fulfills our deepest desires. And the enemy says he doesn't. Someone is lying. If you've been a a parent or if you've ever had to be responsible for a group of kids, you will be faced with a situation where something has gone missing and you know that the three people standing in front of you, someone is guilty of that going missing. And they all deny it. They all say, I did not take that thing. I did not move that thing. And they may even accuse the others of having done that. And I look at that and mathematically I say, it has to be one of you. Somebody's lying. Somebody's not telling me the truth. And that is ultimately where these battles lie. That's the battleground, is who is lying. The God who loved you and gave himself up for you, who created you, who delivers you, who redeems you, who forgives you, or the one who has come to seek and destroy. We need to be aware We need to pray, God, don't let me fall into the temptation by becoming unaware of the enemy's traps. Don't we fall into that. Deliver me through knowing that you fulfill all of my deepest desires and you deliver me from all of my biggest fears. That is our prayer. Another area that this happens in is is surrounding that in, in 1 Peter 5. He says in verse 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And so that's another area that we are called to pray for in this. Deliver me from evil. Don't don't lead me into temptation. Don't fall into temptation. God, make me humble. Give me humility in this. One of the ways that we fall into temptation is through pride. We are so familiar with these passages. Like in Proverbs 16, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. One of the greatest enemies in, our, in, in that luring way, the way that Satan um, tempts us and lures us and entices us by our own desires and by our own pride. And so the answer to that is humility. See, some of us have no problem admitting our weaknesses in the faith. In fact, for some, some of you right now, that may be all that you feel. You just feel like you are constantly weak. Others refuse to admit that they have any weaknesses. Most of us are in the middle. Most of us are in a mix, right? Most of us have moments where we are very confident in our own ability to grasp things and to do things in our own strength. And then other moments we feel like utter failures. And quite frankly, we often have those situations reversed. We are often weakest when we think we are strong and strongest when we think we're weak. I'll give you an example. I do a lot of um, couples counseling and have over the years. And um, when somebody comes in, if a couple comes in, 
the person who thinks that they are nailing this whole marriage thing, that they are just knocking it out of the park, and that the problem is with the other person, is far more concerned to me than the person who comes in and says, I'm, I'm a failure. I'm failing. Well, why is that? Because the one who thinks that they're a failure will completely depend on Christ. And the one who thinks that they're a success will depend on themselves. When Jesus said this in Mark 2, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. See, it is when we believe, when we have been humbled, and we know that we are in need of help, when we know we have a right view of who we are in light of everything that's going on and our abilities and our strengths and our weaknesses, when we, when we know that, then we will depend on Christ. We will call out to God for help. We will be humbled before him. But it is so often that in our areas of strength that the enemy will come in and he'll say, see, no, you, you know what's going on. See, it's Satan often tempts us in our areas of strength, not our areas of weakness. Yes, he loves to kick us while we're down and he'll challenge you in your identity and, and would God actually forgive you and all of those things. But that's a different issue. When Satan works on our strengths, when he tempts us in the midst of our strengths, it looks very different. When you feel like I've got this thing nailed, I don't need any help, I don't need to listen to anything. That's when things happen like you, you hear a, a sermon on gossip and you think that it's about somebody else who has that problem, but not you. Or you hear something on the radio about being in the word and you don't even question that. You don't even ask yourself if you've really been loving God's word and devoting yourself to it because you've signed up for every Bible study. Or you see something on Facebook from a different political viewpoint and, and you look at that and you think that they're so foolish because you are so informed politi politically. So you, you think like, well, I, I understand what's really going on. That person's a fool. And so we refuse to even listen. See, in that passage in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, it says, let anyone who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. He's saying it's, it's when you think you're strongest, that's when you are most susceptible to the enemy prowling around. That's when you're most in danger. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That should say something to us. Humility is not Weakness, it is strength and it is characterized by listening and seeking to understand and compassion. It is marked by not taking offense easily and by not worrying about our own reputation. Humility is strength because it is depending on the strength of Christ. 2 Corinthians 12 says, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am most in need of Christ, I am at my strongest. See, Satan says that pride is strength. That strength is not admitting weakness. That strength and spiritual maturity is having everything figured out and not being willing to listen. But God says through his word that it is when you are weak that you are strong. Someone is lying. 
So our prayer would be, God, don't let me fall into the temptation of pride, of resting in my own understanding, of being wise in my own eyes, but deliver me by humbling me, by giving me ears to hear and to listen and to seek understanding and to be fully dependent on you. That leads to another thing, third thing that we ask for, and that is wisdom. That as we're praying, God, protect me. Don't let me fall into temptation. We're also praying for wisdom. God, let me see things rightly. Let me not only be aware, let me be humble, but let me be wise as I look and see how things are. James 1 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without approach, and it will be given him. That's right after what he says about meeting trials of various kinds with joy. He's saying, like, if you lack any wisdom, ask God and he will give it to you. See, once you're aware of your surroundings and you know that you're in a dangerous area and you've humbled yourself before the Lord, we ask for wisdom to know what is actually being tested. That's the biggest thing with this that I I just want to touch on. It's wisdom specifically to know, okay, God, how are you testing me? What, what are you actually testing right now? See, when I, when I was being assessed as a potential church planter, um, they, they would take us through, if, if, they, if you wanted to plant a church to this organization, they would take you through the several-day uh, assessment where they would put you through interviews and tests and you know, all kinds of things. They would listen to you preach. They would do marriage counseling. They would... Um, do some training, and and all these different things. And at the end of it, they wanted to be able to recommend, this person is fit to plant a church or we don't think it's a good idea. And so Laura and I went through that. We were put through all these tests and exercises. And one of them was a a group exercise where we were split into uh, groups of, you know, like eight or, or so. And we were given a church's situation. So they would give us this, we would read about this particular church and, and, the, and the situation that they were in, the difficulties that they were facing. And then we were asked as a group to come up with a solution for that church. And while we were doing that, the assessors would all sit around and just watch and observe. And the whole explanation of the exercise was that we were supposed to come up with a great solution for this church. But that wasn't actually what they were testing us on. They were not testing if we could come up with the right strategy or if we could even, even if we could exegete scripture enough to say, to take a firm moral or ethical or biblical stand on certain issues or to come up with a great administrative plan to lead the church out of this problem. What they were actually testing was how we worked with one another, how we disagreed with one another, how we got others on board, how we treated one another, in short, how we loved one another. By the way, Lauren got the highest score at her table because she's amazing. But the reality is that that's what they wanted to see. They wanted to see how do we love one another, not do we have all the right answers. And we are faced with this type of situation every day. We need to have wisdom, church, in knowing what the test actually is, what God is actually wanting to reveal in us. 
We see this in other places in Scripture. Paul in 1 Corinthians is talking to them about meat. There was the big question of were they allowed to eat meat? And what about meat that was sacrificed to idols? And this was huge debate of like, um, it was basically a big theological debate. Who's right? Who's wrong? Can we eat meat? Can we not? Some people said yes. Some people said no. And so they appealed to Paul. Paul, just tell us the answer. Give us a yes or no. Are we supposed to eat this meat or are we not? Their faith was being tested. They all knew that their faith was being tested, but not in the way that they thought. They thought that the test was about, are you supposed to eat meat or not? But it was actually about how they loved one another. See, the test wasn't, should you eat meat or not? And then God says, okay, good. You all arrived at the correct conclusion. The test was, how will you treat your brothers and sisters who disagree with you? How will you treat those who are younger and weaker in the faith? Paul says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. He says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And so while these other people were having an argument over, do we have the right to eat meat or not? Paul's saying, I would gladly give up my rights to love my brother. I would think this would hit pretty close to home right now. There's all this talk right now about how the church is essential and about the right to gather. But right now, church, I just want to say these are political battles and political terms. These aren't the things that God is testing us in about whether our definition of the First Amendment is right, about whether our understanding of the virus is correct, if it's a bigger deal than everybody thinks or it's not nearly as big of a deal as everybody thinks. That's not what God is testing us in. Our test is how will we receive brothers and sisters who view it differently than us? How will you treat those who are afraid? How will you love those who are angry? Or will you be tempted by the enemy to be lured into foolish controversies? As Paul says in Titus 3.9, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. See, the enemy wants to be lying to you and say, like, this is about your rights. Demand your rights. You deserve this. You have to fight for this. But Paul says, avoid those quarrels. They're worthless. Love your brother. This is our opportunity as a church to demonstrate that we can love our neighbor and worship our God and that those are not separate things. We can back up our claims that the church is not a building, but it is actually a people by ministering to our neighbors in their homes, by sharing the gospel with them, by listening with understanding, by caring for the most vulnerable. God, don't let us be led away by meaningless quarrels. Deliver us by giving us wisdom to see what really matters. Finally, I want to touch on one more, and that is how God delivers us and gives us a way of escape through one another through accountability. 
1 Corinthians 10, again, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Peter says something similar in, in chapter 5, verse 9. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Listen to me. Whatever trial you are facing, whatever God is testing in you right now, you are not alone. You're not alone. You have brothers and sisters in this very church family who understand what it is to be tested. It may not look exactly the same way, but they know what it means to try and follow Jesus and to hear the lies of the enemy and to fight against that kind of temptation. You're not alone. And listen to me, you need each other. You need each other. It's not a nice to have. It's not a bonus thing in the Christian life. When you confess to a brother or sister and ask for accountability, you are asking a brother or sister who has fought that same fight, who have prayed those same prayers. That is what Hebrews 10 is all about. When the author says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Church, listen, the the author here is not speaking about large group worship services in church buildings. They didn't have those. That's not what he's talking about there. He's saying that to be the family of God, you need to be together. What the early church, yes, they, they would go into the synagogue and they would do that. But what he's talking about here is how they would gather in one another's homes day by day. They were with each other all the time, considering how to stir one another to love and good works, encouraging one another. I will tell you, I think one of the tests right now our church is facing is we've had to ask ourselves as church leadership is, is our church actually family? I think we're being tested to ask the question of do we have a biblical definition of community as a church and is everyone experiencing that let me just touch on that first question because i know i've gotten so much pushback over the years from people saying i don't know why you always talk about community this church has always been family and it doesn't matter how much i teach on it i still see the same things over and over again God in his kindness right now, I think, is testing and revealing the nature of the community that we say that we have. And I think we often buy into lesser versions, often because we we confuse terms. We confuse biblical community with having a sense of community. And there's a difference. Let me give you an example. I, I have a sense of community with youth baseball. I coach, I have kids in it, I, I love the people that are there, I, I enjoy them, I love being around them, I miss them right now. I'm so sad that there's not baseball and I can't connect with those people, with my friends at, at the ball fields. But here's the thing, I can say that I have community. We could even refer to it as the baseball family. But since this has all happened, not one of them has called to check up on me. Not one. To see how I'm doing during this time. To see if I need anything. And it's not because they're bad people. I I love them, but they they don't see. We're not real family. We're like baseball family. And that's the level of community that many have in our church. 
where we say, I, I have community. And what we mean by that is I, I laugh with these people. Every time I see them, I, I talk to them and I catch up with them and how they're doing. I serve alongside of them. We have a great time together when we're together. And now that I'm not able to see them every week, it's gone. And that wouldn't be so with true biblical community. See, a key difference between community and biblical community is responsibility. What do I mean by that? I just mean this. It's a simple question. Do you feel responsible for them? And do they feel responsible for you? That's different than liking somebody. It's different than wanting to help if you're needed. It's saying, I feel responsible for them. If I go somewhere with my kids, if I go to some kind of, of, to a baseball game, after that baseball game is over, the kids all scatter or whatever, I hope that all of those kids get home safely. I want all of those kids to get home safely. If any of those kids needed a ride home, I would give it to them. But there are only three that I feel fully responsible to get home. Those are my family. That's what we are supposed to have. Right now, I would ask the question of who do you feel responsible for in the church? That when all of this happened, you said, I need to call and make sure they're okay. I need to call and make sure that they have everything that they need. That is your family. And when you are then responsible for them spiritually, who would you say, I'm responsible. I need to make sure that they are growing in Christ. I need to make sure that they are growing in their understanding of the word and their love for the word. That is biblical community. If we don't have that, we have friends, which are great. I have a lot of Christian friends. You might have spiritual camaraderie. There are a lot of people that when I get together with them, I can talk about the gospel and it's wonderful. But that's not the same thing as what we mean when we say the church is family. And it's possible, I think, right now that this test is exposing that. That some of us are going to have to face, some of us are, will face the idea that our definitions of community have been off. Because right now, we realize that we're actually quite alone. And the enemy is going to tell you, no, your definition is fine. That's everybody else's fault. It's not yours. But God is going to say, no, I'm, I'm testing this. I'm revealing this to you because when, when trials come, I want you to have real community. Because that's the thing, is we want everyone to experience that. See, part of our job as elders is to get a big picture. And I, I don't want to take away from this. There are many people in our church who have that definition of biblical community. There is no question. But our job as an eldership and as a, as a church leadership team is to ensure that everybody in our church has that. And we, I can just tell you flat out, we have far too many people who don't have that kind of community. They have friends, they have acquaintances, but right now they are very alone. And that's not okay. 
That's why I think it's God's grace that he has led us to this point to take away some of the things that we have relied on and leaned heavily on. I know that I've found through this time that there have been ways that I've leaned on the Sunday morning worship service in ways that I shouldn't have been. Just assuming that a, a smile and a wave is, is uh, that I'm going to see what's going on. And that, that's just not true. And so I think right now, that's why we feel like God has led us to this place where we're saying the first phase of getting back together is to gather in homes. It's better to test, to be tested and to see how we're actually doing, to not fall into the temptation of just being dismissive and say, say no, 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 I think everything's fine with community. We just need to all get back together in a large group and we'll be fine. And so our prayer is God protect us from being tempted to compromise what that biblical community looks like. Or to be okay with just not having it. Or just a few people having it. Deliver us through a deep love for one another that comes from being loved by you. I believe, here's the thing church, I believe that the majority of our people aren't okay with being um, satisfied with a lesser version of community. And I believe that the vast majority of our people aren't okay that there are people who aren't experiencing it, even if they are. The question, though, is what are you willing to do about it? Are you willing to reach out to us and tell us that you don't know where to go or who to invite? Are you willing to reach out and say, I'm, I'm not okay with others not having a place to go. And so I, I have some friends that I'm inviting over on Sunday morning, but we have room for another person or another family. Are you willing to do that? To ensure that our church family is including everybody and is loving everyone, regardless of their background, regardless of their social skills, regardless of their history, regardless of their personalities, regardless of anything. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to expand your circle a little to care for the family of God? If so, I want to encourage you to send us an email or to call us. I do want to end on this note. Because these tests, I feel like this whole time, I, I, I drew that one out because that's been heavy on my heart as we've been trying to minister to people. But I also have been able to rejoice. The cool thing about being tested by God in those moments is, one, it can convict us of ways in which we are straying, that we are being lured away. But it also can be a place for rejoicing in the work of God's grace in our lives. And one of those areas is I think what God is doing in a lot of churches right now is he's testing them in the area of, of giving. And we're being tested of what does it mean when we're not able to all get together in one room and have that kind of energy? Will, will offerings decrease? And there are all these things that were uh, warning churches of you are likely to see giving decrease over the next few months. Even practically speaking, people are not able to um, put their offering in the plate or in the boxes or whatever. They can't do it here. And especially for churches like ours, where the vast majority of our giving is not done online. And so we were being warned by everybody. Well, here's what we know. The last two months have been our biggest giving months. And some of our biggest giving months in the last several years. All we did was say, church, don't forget to give. 
We need you to continue to give so that we can continue to do the ministry that we've been called to do in this area. That is all we said. And you responded by giving us by far. I mean, when I say by far, I'm saying like April was double what our lower months were this year. It was unbelievable. And it's just, it's just continuing. May has been a phenomenal month in that way. That's not normal for those months. And during a pandemic, even less likely. And so it's encouraging to see that. And it's things like that that make me know that this church as a whole, as a family, says we want to pursue Jesus whatever the cost. We will obey him and follow him. And yes, there are some areas that are harder and more difficult in our culture than other areas. But we are all in with Jesus. And we are all in for this church family. And so I want us to capitalize on that. I want us to meet this trial with joy, knowing that our Father is testing our faith. And through this testing, he's producing steadfastness. He is equipping us and encouraging us and building us up. I've been challenged in so many ways through this. God has been testing me in so many ways. And I know that if we have eyes to see, if we are aware, if we are humble, if we are wise, if we are accountable to one another, then we will see God do incredible things as we pray. God, don't let us fall into the temptation of thinking that these circumstances are the problem and that if we could just all, like, wipe all this away, then everything would be fine. Forgive us, God, for, for thinking that that's the answer to it. God, no, reveal the things that are in our hearts. Reveal the things that we need to see so that we can pursue you more fully. Father, please, do that for us. Because the enemy right now is going to lie and he's going to tell you all kinds of things. He's going to lie to you about your rights, about your wisdom, about your pride, about your, what you deserve, about um, the political things. He's going to whisper all of these things to you. The thing he won't whisper in your ear is, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. So it is all those things that we pray this morning when we say, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Help us, Father. Grow us in our faith. Let us experience more of you. In Jesus' name, amen.